Hello, and welcome to Unstoppable Rise, a resource that helps motivate individuals navigate this very complex world we live in, take advantage of its vast opportunities while avoiding its many pitfalls, using a combination of old school wisdom and new breed tactics to achieve these ends. I'm your host, Sim, and the discussion today is going to be talking about principles and time-honored values that help prevent chaos in your life. So let me first start off by saying I was inspired to talk about this topic because I've been reading a book called The Perennial Philosophy, and this is a book by a man named Aldous Huxley. You probably have heard of him. He's the author of a book called Brave New World, which you may have read in high school, or you may have just read for pleasure. But this book is different from that because it is taking a look at different religious systems and different philosophical systems and saying how at the end of the day, they're all pointing to a similar route and they're all saying similar things. These are all looking at underlying absolutes and these were from cultures that really had no contact with one another for thousands and thousands of years. So there's no way they could gather together and say, hey, I think this is right, this is right, this is wrong, this is wrong, etc., etc. But they all came to a similar conclusion somehow. And that would be impossible if there was no universal absolutes. So going back to the perennial philosophy, the perennial philosophy at its essential building blocks at the end of the day is a book about principles. So principles are what are pretty much first order causes and things that arise out of the natural scheme of things. So they're the root and laws and rules and regulations, etc. Conduct of character is the flowering plant of these roots. And I think I've talked about that before, but principles are pretty much things that are true at all times, more or less. So these are absolutes. And these are basically the rules of the game, so to speak, when it comes to human behavior and how you can live harmoniously with existence and the universe and other people. So these principles are as old as time, pretty much, and they were discovered by different people and different cultures, like I just said. Um, These people were able to make pretty much the basic framework upon which our society runs, east and west, and it's an amazing feat when you think about it because they didn't have computers, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have internet they were just able to observe the patterns that happened in the universe and create laws around them. So you ask, how do you do that? Well, I don't really know, but I do know that I wouldn't be able to come up with anything like math or science or even language. Well, take that back. Uh, eh, no, I definitely would not be able to come up with a language. So... Anything that makes our world run, uh, groups of people came together with similar opinions and contributed to it. So these people were able to come up with these things, like, let's say, the golden ratio, which is a figure in mathematics and physics, Uh, how a house is built how structures are built so they don't collapse. All these things, these people were able to come up with these 
things that we take for granted because they were able to deeply observe the world and they were able to be attuned to it, unlike a lot of us today. So um, when I think about this ability, you know, this is something that is really lost to us as a whole, as a culture, as a society, as a as human beings, you know, this is our God-given right to observe the world and put our place in it. Because these people in the past, they were deeply connected to the world. They were deeply connected to nature. They were deeply connected to reality. And they were able to adjust themselves to it more than a lot of people are today. So try this out for an experiment. Um, go for a week and don't listen to any music. Don't listen to radio, TV, go on YouTube, anything that really involves external sound other than what you're naturally getting from your environment. So you just sit back and observe. Observe the sounds that arise when you wake up in the morning. You hear the birds chirping, the sounds that go about when you're on your daily commute to work, probably hear your car humming, the sounds that happen when you're working on your business. So if you're working by yourself, the clicking of the keys, probably some uh, you breathing. And if you work at a co-working space, the, the conversations of other people. And just sit back and just really take it all in and just absorb yourself in this sound wave, this pulsating sound that comes from other people and from nature. And when you really do that, you start to pick up on nuances and you start to just really be more observant when you're not inputting your senses with external stimuli. So try that for an experiment and see how that happens for you and see what you find out about yourself and other people at the end of that. So today, when I think of a lot of people, um, we have legions of people walking around who don't even know who the fuck they are, who don't know what their values are, who don't know what their principles are, and just go with whatever the trend of the day is. They go with whatever's cool, whatever's in, whatever's new, whatever's hip. And people have always done that, but I do think now with the easy, accessible nature of information that there's so much things going in and out, and you especially see this happen in the world of self-development. You also see this happen a lot with jobs. A lot of people will go from job to job to job, searching for God knows what, and they just jump from career to career saying, this would be nice, this would be cool, this would be awesome to do, but they're not able to really get anything solid and they're not able to build a base of skills and a foundation which they can grow upon. They're always going from the new thing, the next thing, to the latest thing. But I digress, that's a topic for a different time. Um, so there's a whole bunch of people who have not built their life on solid principles, things that have been proven to work. I was looking for the next trend and 
they effectively have built their house on sand, which obviously means there's no foundation, which then means the floods of life will come, uh, which they inevitably will, and these people get wiped out, and the end result is not pretty. So the question remains, what are some of these principles? So I'll just be naming some of these. These are going to be um, pretty much off the top of my head, and there are thousands of principles out there. But these are some of the ones that are forefront in my mind and the ones that you can easily get a grasp on and really start thinking about and probably start applying uh, as soon as you finish listening to this. So one principle could be seek to understand, then to be understood. That's a Stephen Covey concept from his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And understanding yourself, understanding others, understanding people in general is just a very high-level skill because you're able to work with people and anything you want to do is done with and through people. So this is especially important for a leader, a leader in the workplace. He obviously understands himself. Well, maybe not, but he understands the market he operates in. He understands his uh, competition. He understands his products. He understands everything. Uh relating to that and the general in war he understands the battleground he understands the fog of war the chaos that happens during war and he understands the the um the ability to gain victory or the inability to gain victory, so victory or defeat. And, of course, a leader has to understand his people. He has to get inside them. He has to get inside their likes, their dislikes, their needs, their wants, their fears. And overall, he's just an inside thinker. He thinks from an inside perspective. He's looking at the inner causes, not always the outer outer causes. And then he's able to influence people rather than force them to do things. So at a higher level of consciousness, uh, you don't even really need to be understood by other people. You just create a space for them to exist and for them to hash out whatever it is that they need to hash out. Um, This could even be in a friend relationship with your friends. Your friends may be on a quote-unquote lower level of consciousness than you are and They just don't get certain things, and you just let them get away with certain things, maybe in an argument, and then you just end up taking the high road because you realize that they are just expressing what they need to express inside them. So if they lash out at you, you don't really take it personally, and you don't really let it devolve into a full-scale argument that needs to get that doesn't need to get into, and you just realize that this is them just working through some inner issues. So that's one example. Another example would be a parent and a child. You know, a parent doesn't expect his child to understand what's going on in his world, but he's able to create a space for the child to express what's going on in theirs. You know, this understanding without being understood, it's a very high level thing. And it's very subtle, very, very subtle. And it takes some understanding to really get inside of it and really use it because that smooths over a lot of human relations. 
This is also the distinction between influence and force, or power versus force, which leads into the other principle I was thinking of, power versus force. So power, in general, is just more influential than force. Power comes from higher levels of consciousness, and it comes from states like gratitude, empathy, joy, compassion, happiness, even enlightenment. And power originates from those higher states. And force originates from lower states such as anger, greed, guilt, fear, and just anything that is very, I'd say very human. The human, very human emotions like anger, fear, um, greed, all of that stuff. That's a ve- those are very human emotions, and those are things that you feel you feel them a lot more real, and you feel them a lot more uh, in the pit of your stomach, and you just feel them throughout your body more than you would something like empathy or joy or compassion. Those feelings are a lot more. You feel you feel lightened by those those other those feelings like anger, rage fear, all that stuff. Those are very heavy emotions. And, you know, they have their place. They definitely do have their place. But at the end of the day, they're only going to get you so far. And you need to advance to a higher level, a higher level of consciousness. And that's what power is. So power is more influential than force. And power is inspiration. Force is like a gun to your head, forcing you to do something. Power is having people gravitate towards you naturally, while force is trying to make people like you. Power is letting a bad habit or addiction just fall away of its own accord. And force is gritting your teeth and fighting with the addiction. You will have an easier time in life in general. The more you operate from higher levels of consciousness, rather than lower levels of consciousness. This is why, like I just mentioned, taking the high road and just... Not not getting involved in lower level things like lower level petty things like just unnecessary drama, drama, drama in general, just unnecessary drama is just is very, very, very low state of mind because it drums up everything that's bad about human beings and it just serves them up in a form of gossip and just very addict it's a very addictive thing drama is because it makes you feel this rush you feel like you're on drugs whenever um there's some sort of drama and i know everyone has felt this before and it's a very heady feeling and very intoxicating but the come down is always very heavy so speaking of power the 48 laws of power by robert green is probably one of it's a classic it's a modern classic to be honest because it's a pure distillation of powerful principles in the form of laws so my two favorite laws from that book my two most favorites have to be law four and law 48 law four states that you should always say less than necessary and law 48 states you should assume formlessness So when you combine both of these together, you pretty much create the essence of seduction. And when I talk about seduction, I don't necessarily mean seducing the opposite sex or 
a lover or somebody like that. I'm just talking about seduction for people in general, somebody that people want to get to know. So an example of this, talking about the lover example, is you are on a date with another person and you really like them and you really want to impress them. So you talk about your achievements, you talk about your goals, you talk about how great of a person you are, and you pretty much just fill the space with your own sound coming from your own mouth. And you pretty much don't really let her get a word in edgewise. So uh, you're very over eager to impress her. And next day, you find out that she doesn't call you back. She's not returning your text. And you're like, what happened? I thought we had some great chemistry. Well, at the end of the day, you said more than you needed to. Because, let's be honest, a lot of us like people who are a bit of a mystery. And just laying all your cards out on the table is really a killer of just the getting to know you phase of anybody. And just even just getting to know you phase of anyone long term, even with friends. Because when you know all about somebody you feel like oh yeah i've i've got them i've got them known i i know who they are i've characterized them and you follow them you follow that in the mental cabinet in the back of your mind about who they are but when there's a bit of mystery around them when you don't know everything about them and then you start to get a sense of who they are over years decades then that person becomes very charismatic in a sense so a lot of people think that seduction is over when you get married and the courting is over when you get married. But on the contrary, being a contrarian, that's when you should ramp up the courting and seduction because familiarity breeds contempt amongst people, amongst lovers. Because people who are in close quarters, often you tend to get sick of them. Um, and that's why some people the best relationship with them is just far away and seeing them every now and then. And that's why when you meet an old friend and that you haven't seen in a while, you feel like it's it's you feel like it's it's a great time because you haven't seen them for a while and you have to catch up. And then it's just newness. It creates novelty. So if you say less than necessary, that by itself creates necessary mystery, sorry. It also creates uh, decisiveness. So in Zen thought, there is a belief that if you're enlightened, you can pretty much walk through life completely silent and you speak loudly through your actions and through what you do or don't do. And that's really powerful. So saying less than necessary is a hard one to follow because, you know, a lot of people like to talk a lot and a lot of people feel the need to explain themselves and when you're younger, especially when you're young, you feel like you need to explain yourself and justify yourself to everyone. And you always have to pretty much save face. That's, that's what I did a lot. I did a lot of justification to other people of why I was doing certain things. And I just said more than I had to. And it was just like, okay, Sam, we get it. Or it was just like, okay, why, why are you telling me this? So I just pretty much got to the point where I just do things, and then I said things afterwards. So the deed was already done, or it's already on its process of being done, and then 
you don't have to justify yourself or you don't have to explain why you're doing it. You just get up and go. So that's the um, say less than necessary part. The other part is assume formlessness. So someone like Lao Tzu, obviously the author of the Tao Te Ching, he talked about water in the Tao Te Ching saying how it's so fine that you can't really grasp it or strike it or stab it and you can't really do anything to harm it. And obviously water is the example in the physical world of a perfectly non-resistant substance because it just molds itself to whatever container you put it in. So if you put it in a bottle, it assumes the shape, the quote unquote shape of a bottle. And if you spill it on, on the floor, then it's just on the floor. And obviously it can turn into a liquid, solid or gas. So water has no form, but it also has many forms. Um, and it can also some, do something like destroy a city, so like a flood, and then it can also sustain life. So when you're drinking water, it is the model in the physical universe, like I said, of how your mind and your action should go. So pretty much non-attachment and pretty much being fluid. So you have to keep moving, keep changing, and keep growing. And you never get stuck in the same place or the same routine or the same form. And when water when water stays in one place for too long, it gets polluted and it gets stagnant. And that's what happens to a lot of people. You leave them for five years, you come back, you see them five years later, you're like, you're the same, you're the same person I left five years ago. Where's the progress? Where's the movement? Where's the change? Why are you stagnant? And this is what happens to a lot of people. So obviously that is not good and you want to avoid that. So say less than necessary and of course assume formlessness. So another one is learn and then do. You can only learn when you can only do when you learn. And that's why you go to school to learn. That's why there's internships, apprenticeships work-study programs, all of these things. So I've been asked before, what is the best method to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is, they all work. All of the methods work that if they're followed. There's not one method that doesn't really work. It's not like you're going to just encounter explicit failure if you pick up a book, like a business book, or a history book or an autobiography or whatever you know there's a lot of books that do have a lot of bullshit in them and there's a lot of books that should not be published and they're only published for getting a quick book and there's also books that have methods that are you know less than optimal but generally speaking you're going to be better off on page 305 of a book than you would before you picked it up especially if you're starting from ground one so the problem comes when you start accumulating all of these books and you become a self-help junkie, but you don't really apply anything in the books. Then your head starts getting filled with all of this theory and your mind becomes very stagnant. So you need to pick one method, just follow it to the letter, and 
if things aren't working, just adjust from there. And that goes back to the point I made earlier when people are just jumping, jumping, jumping from task to task, job to job, and method to method, and they haven't really attained any sort of proficiency in anything. So they just end up having all of these half-baked skills, and obviously that's not good. So the main thing I'd recommend for people is just getting the book Psycho-Cybernetics, and a lot of books are essentially copies of that book. So someone came to me the other day, and he asked me, for help on a specific thing. And I asked him, have you read the book Psycho-Cybernetics? He said no. So I told him, go and read that book. Understand it. Because I can tell him a lot of things, but none of them will work until he's read that book. Because that is just the basic foundation and framework for a lot of what I was going, a lot of the advice I was going to talk to him about. But the main problem is a lot of people can't really read books today because they can't really focus much less for long periods of time. So in virtually all contemplative traditions around the world, focus is listed as the main ingredient to success. It's listed as the key to heaven or God or enlightenment. And why is that? Well, it's because what you focus on and what you put your attention on will pretty much grow in your life. It will just grow to a certain proportion. And as human beings, we can only focus on one thing at a time. And that's why you don't text and drive. That's why you make sure you're always watching your pots on the fire. That's why you just can't be studying while you're on the phone doing God knows what. It's because you can only put your attention on one thing at a time. So this concept of attention and focus, mainly attention, is why I don't really watch the news too much. And it's why I don't use social media for the most part. Do I need to know what people, what my friends are doing at every second of the day? Not really. And I don't really need to know a majority of the things on the news because they don't really help me make my ideal life. I will be much better off focusing my attention on my media environment and see how I can help out people in my media environment. Because when you tune into stuff like TV or social media, or when you're watching the lives of other people, or when you're getting engrossed in that, you're pretty much not tuning into your own life. And there's a lot of people who are dropping in or tuning in or turning on, tuning in and dropping out to reference that counterculture saying from the 60s. There's a lot of people who are doing that, and they're doing that with social media, television, and just junk, just junk information and junk news. Because we obviously live in an attention economy where your attention is monopolized for ad clicks, for revenue, for you're pretty much used being used as a human ATM, and you're not given anything back but a head full of air. So is that what you want? Is that what you really want to be taking in? The equivalent, the mental equivalent of junk food? I'd hope not. And you obviously don't want to become an airhead. I really hope not. And if you're listening to this, I don't think you do. So again, watch your mental diet. 
but I will hope that you embrace some sort of grounding philosophy, whether that be Zen or that be Buddhism, Islam, Stoicism, Christianity, you know, whatever it is. And the reason I say that is because you need some sort of philosophy to guide your actions. And we are only effective by putting limitations on ourselves because if you're free to do anything, you'll do everything. And then if you do everything, you can't do you can't do a certain thing. So you can do anything, but you can't do everything. That's the main point. And then putting limitations on yourself, putting limitations on your time, on your on your money, on your energy, those three resources I mentioned, those help you guide your life in a certain direction and help you get to where you want to get. So like I said, all these philosophies speak about a way. There is a way of conduct and behavior that helps you avoid chaos in your life. So all of these religions and philosophies have rules and regulations of conduct designed to help you focus on the few instead of the many. And the few is the way the way that leads to to life, to life abundant, which we all want. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, straight and narrow is the way which leads to life, and a few find it, but the road that leads to destruction is wide, and a lot of people enter it. So, pretty much that was just, you could take that from a religious perspective, but you can also think of it that there's just a lot of distractions that will take you off your path, take you off your true path, take you off the path at least to goodness. And like I said, life abundant. So in his inferno, Dante said he was midway on the journey of life and he found himself in a dark forest where the path was hidden from view. So this forest was very gnarled and it was very dense where even the thought of it renewed his fear. He could not remember how he got there because he was asleep when he fell off the path. So that um, is basically the opening lines of the Inferno, more or less. And he was just saying how he fell off the way. He became distracted and he lost sight of the end pathway of the goodness and abundance of life but he ends up redeeming himself in the rest of the divine comedy and obviously in paradiso the final the final um book of the divine comedy so he was really fortunate because a lot of people fall off the way aren't um as an aside i knew someone who was a great guy awesome guy great guy I used to serve tables with him in high school, and we had good, we had good, great rapport. We were spent a lot of our shifts bantering back and forth about this, that, and the other. We came from different schools, but we were in the same year, so we were going to college the same year. And um, you know, the year after, uh, we both went our separate ways. We kept in touch. We got each other on Facebook, and we just you know, kept in touch sporadically. So we talked here and there. And then I learned that he developed a nasty addiction to opiates. So he would get clean, relapse, get clean, relapse again, that whole cycle. 
And the last time I spoke to him, he was doing great. He was doing really good. He said he was on the up and up. He was working. He was getting his life together. And he was just going back to college. So he was going back to community college. And he was just staying away from the quote-unquote bad stuff. And about three, four years later, I didn't really talk to him that much. But um, I wondered how he was doing. And I eventually found out that he died. You know, he died from an overdose after 14 months clean. So his latest relapse was his final relapse. I hope he found the peace that he was looking for, but that's an example of falling off the way so much that you can't find your way back. You know, you can't come back because, I mean, there's only so much that you can do to come back. And, you know, some things like addictions, addiction to certain things, it's, it's very hard to just recover from that. You know, a lot of people who are addicts are addicts for life. And I think addiction is a topic that deserves its own discussion, but all it takes is one small error, you know, compounded over time to snowball from a bad habit to a full-blown addiction to catastrophe. And you don't fall off the way all at once. It's pretty much bit by bit by bit by bit until finally, you know, you're ensnared in that dark wood that Dante pretty much talked about and you can't find your way back. The reason why I like philosophies like Taoism, why I love it to death, is because, you know, a lot of these Eastern philosophies are very simple, but they contain a lot of meaning and they're very complex. And a lot of these Eastern philosophies' main focus is just being in harmony with the universe, not fighting against the universe, just being in flow with it. So this Taoism philosophy is called Wu Wei, and this is mentioned a lot in the Tao Te Ching. And that's a book I can come to over and over and over again at different stages of my life and always find something new in it. You know, this book, I read it back in 2015, and I've read it several times since, and there's always, it always reads new to me because it's always speaking to my life circumstances. I'm like, I get that, I get that. But the next time I read the next line, uh, the next time I read the same line a year later, I'm like, wow, this has a whole different meaning to me. Taoism is really interesting because it focuses on the Taoism and Zen, particularly. They focus on the essential and consequential nature of reality while simultaneously and paradoxically focusing on how everything matters. There's this other book called The Unfettered Mind by Takuan Soho. He was a Zen master who... I believe he taught Miyamoto Musashi, who was a legendary samurai swordsman. I, I can't I can't remember, don't quote me on that. But I am pretty sure they're contemporaries, if not teacher and student. But he wrote this book called The Unfettered Mind, which is pretty much talking about Zen in the context of Japanese swordsmanship. And he said there is a time pretty much for everything. The warrior knows when to kill. He knows when to give life. He knows when to sheath his sword. He knows when to unsheath his sword. You know, a lot of people think that a lot of these Eastern philosophies are pretty much advocating nonviolence, but, you know, a lot of these Eastern philosophies, a lot of these religions, period, uh, pretty much every religion that we have in the world originated 
from a time and place where there was a lot of conflict and war going on. You know, these religious systems did not come from peaceful people because they realized that the essential nature of the human being is to pretty much be in conflict either with yourself or with other people because that's just what it is to be human. You're going to bad heads. You're going to butt heads with people who don't see the way you see. You're going to have to defend yourself. You're going to have to pretty much just stand up for what is right. And that takes fighting against something. And sometimes not even fighting against something, but fighting for something. So going back to Zen and Taoism, you know, a lot of both of these focuses on the core oneness of things, because out of the one arises the 10,000 things. And of course, the 10,000 is the world of form. And with form comes illusion, and with illusion comes obscurity of the true nature of reality. And reality is pretty much hidden behind a veil that's really visible to only those who can, you know, peer beyond that veil and really want to see what reality is. And you're never going to see behind it completely 100%, but you can get close and you can see the underlying quote-unquote logos. And this logos is pretty much known as God. And the logos does what it wants. It has its own will. So the Logos is referenced in something like Meditations by Mark Cerilis, and he said that the Logos, or even all the Stoics, sorry, all the, all the Stoics talked about the Logos. And Mark Cerilis, and specifically in Meditations, talked about how it's the timeless essence that originates and exists everywhere. And not surprisingly, you know, every religion all believes in the Logos in some part. Some religions mention it explicitly. So, you know, um, the Logos has its own will, and this leads into known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. <laughs> so, what does this mean? In our current world, you know, there's a massive current of what I call, quote-unquote, ivory tower intellectualism, and just a belief in materialism and scientism, the religion of science, that's pretty much there's a lot of people who say, you know, I know this, I know that, I know this, I know that, I know physics, I know mathematics, I know philosophy, I know geography, etc., etc., etc. I know all there is to know. But, you know, you ask yourself, is that really true or is that just a front for your ego? So, you know, uh, j- just just do this. Uh, draw yourself a small circle. Small circle, okay? So just take a piece of, piece, piece of paper and just draw a small circle. And I think you should really do this because this is very construct. I think this is really constructive. So you draw yourself a small circle and you know, that's what, you know, that's what you've been exposed to in your life. That's, you know, the town you grew up in, the religion you grew up with or religion you didn't grow up with or the parents and their value system, the family you were born into, the culture you were born into all of these things, all of these different things that you've just been programmed with, pretty much you've been programmed with them, okay? So that's what you know. Then you think about what you don't know. Think about all the people you've never met, all the places you've never been, all the things you've never done, all the things you just don't know. So in those things, you are completely ignorant and you are completely incompetent. And pretty much your opinion, for the most part, is irrelevant, 
your lack of awareness at any given time is pretty much very limited. Shit, you, you don't even know what the fuck is going on behind your own head right now. You can't, you don't have eyes in the back of your head. So there could be someone drilling a hole. Someone could be drilling a hole like, I don't know, a mile away. And you won't know. Like someone could be digging, someone could be building a house, someone could be doing construction projects, someone could be, I don't know, all these things, all these things that are going on just in general. When you think about all the things that are going on in the world at any one time, and you know a very, very small fraction of that. So you ask yourself, how big is that circle of your ignorance? You know, is it 10 times bigger than that known knowns? Is it 100 times bigger? And then if you think that's big, think about what you don't know. So think about it. We're just a tiny rock floating in space in the galaxy in the middle of nowhere in a universe where there's trillions and trillions of galaxies, I believe. You know, we haven't even managed to get out of our own solar system. You know, what out there is what is out there that we simply don't know? And when you think about that, that's a really humbling question because... A lot of people are so afraid to venture out and avoid and the seemingly chaotic nature of reality. And that's why questions are a lot more important than answers. Questions expand and statements close. You know, it's in general, it's about just taking a chance and a risk, not a gamble, but a risk and a risk to expand your paradigm and your worldview and get it completely shattered and reorganized. So what if our ancestors, the great discoverers and conquerors and inventors and etc. etc. Imagine if these people were afraid of these unknown unknowns. Civilization would be thousands and thousands of years back. You and I, we would be wearing loincloths in a cave because our ancestors were afraid to venture out into unknown unknowns. And you know, life happens in these unknown unknowns. The magic of the logos happens in these unknown unknowns. And that's something I had to come to terms with, that knowing that you'll never be ready and you just need to take a leap. Again, not a gamble, but a risk. That's why it's called a leap of faith. You're pretty much jumping into the unknown unknown. You are a jump. So what happens when your will doesn't match up with that of the logos? And what happens when the kingdom you work tirelessly to work to build exiles you, casts you out, and pretty much considers you lower than pond scum? What then? We should probably turn to Bothius for that answer. So Bothius was a senator who served under the king of the Ostrogoths, I believe, in Rome. And one day he was just locked up in a prison for charges of conspiracy, and he was soon to be executed. So can you imagine, uh, just imagine this, one day at your workplace, police show up and they just say, you're arrested, you're going to get locked up. And you get charged with treason, and then you get put on death row. So you're just working one day, and they just come and lock you up. So this is what happened to him, pretty much. But he was able to say, you know, no, I won't let this define me. I won't let this throw me off the everlasting center, the everlasting plumb line of goodness, as Takuan Soho would mention in The Unfettered Mind, like I just said. So what did he do? He wrote... I believe, a series of letters or journals or I don't even know if it was a compilation, but he wrote this thing called the Consolations of Philosophy, pretty much an explanation why God, 
the Logos, lets bad things happen to good people. And this book was so influential, it became a shining light for the next thousands of years, fueling the Renaissance and being an inspiration to many other thinkers like Dante, who I just mentioned not too long ago. So this is what happened when he was able to turn bad into good and tragedy into redemption and how he was just able to transmute and flex on the challenges of life threw at him, which there will be many challenges of life will throw at you. And you know, there's a million of these principles out there, guys, but you really have to be attuned to life and you have to keep your eyes and ears open for them. That's why I talked about the powers of observation. You have to look at the connecting lines between things and you have to see the world in shades of gray rather than just simply black and white. And principles helps you navigate the world of ambiguity because our world is shades of gray. So this past weekend, a friend's dad and I, we were talking, he's a very tuned in guy, very smart guy, very intelligent guy. We were talking about morality. The discussion somehow got to morality. So we got to an example of something like a red light. Is crossing a red, red light bad or good? Universally, it's considered bad. You don't cross a red light. That's why it's a red light, right? But is it as bad if you cross it in four in the middle of 4 a.m. where there's nobody around and you just go through the red light? There's no cameras. There's nobody watching. It's just you and the red light. Do you still go through it? Is it still bad? What about crossing a red light at 4 p.m.? When there's people out on the street and there's kids around, you still cross it. People would, many people would say, you know, the former is not so bad, you know, it's not hurting anyone. And the latter would say, you know, that's really bad. You shouldn't do that. You can't, you can't just cross a red light in the middle of the street in the afternoon. So that's context. Is it, is crossing a red light universally bad? What about killing? What about killing other people? You know, killing just innocent people, most people would say that's bad. But what about killing in war? In a situation where it's pretty much kill or be killed and you have to quote unquote kill the bad guys. What then? Where where's your sense of killing killing? Is it justified? Is it justified in that situation? So when it comes to survival you know, morality goes out the window because at that point it's just kill or be killed. When someone bursts into your house and they're pretty much trying to kill you so they can take your goods and run, at that point it's just about survival. And then you happen to kill the other person in self-defense. Self-defense saying, oh, I killed him in self-defense. That's when killing is justified. So, you know, these things, these shades of gray... These situations happen all the time. And if you don't have principles to help you navigate these shades of gray, you're just going to get swamped and you're just going to get overwhelmed because a lot of life depends on context. You know, you shouldn't, you know, just do things in certain places. And you have to realize that the nuances of life determine those things. And obviously, something like the unfettered mind, again, going back to the unfettered mind, kill when you have to kill and give life when you have to give life, sheath your sword and unsheath it when you have to. 
those are the principles that will guide you through this crazy, complex world we live in, like I mentioned at the beginning. So I hope you enjoy this, and I hope this gave you some material to think about. And I also hope that you're able to come up with some of your come up with some of your own principles and find out some of your own principles. And if you have some principles that I didn't mention here, you know where to reach me. You can always shoot me a line. And I'll see you in the next one. Take care until next time and stay principled, guys.